Okay, so um, we have a few new people tonight compared to last week. Um, so welcome to all of you. And we also have quite a number of people who were here last week too. And my, um, my hope is that we'll have a fairly stable group as it goes through. Um, so that's good. Um, so I thought we'd start with any comments or questions that you might have had from last week's material for those of you who were here or even if you just listened to the recording. Um, for example, how was it to reduce the intensity of discursive thought in meditation or to notice direct experience in, in daily life? Just anything that's on your mind to um, tie up that material if there is any. I can speak up. Um, okay. With everything that's been happening in uh, the news, I found it to be very helpful to just calm the unrest that, or the anxiety. So. Yeah. Yeah, um, we're in a pretty unprecedented period of not knowing um, and of things uh, breaking apart that maybe needed to break apart, um, but that creates a lot of uncertainty. And um, yeah, and so I think we see more than ever the value of the Dharma practice in being able to meet this in some way to whatever degree that we can. So. I have to say that I felt deep gratitude for having a path during this time. And I hope, I hope this class also contributes something to, to that. So thank you. I'm sure what you said probably resonates with a lot of people here. Anything else coming up? I can speak up. Okay, yeah, Sujata and then Emily. Sorry, um, I was gonna say that um, after our first meeting, um, I approached this um, in a different way. Um, I used to think analytical mind as a sort of an obstacle perhaps, but now I have this view of understanding that I needed to understand some, some concepts relating to the Dhammas. And then I, 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 need, I could understand better where to use it and where to put it away or where to let it go. Um, especially for example, when I'm, reading suttas or listening to a discourse, for example, um, I can see the use of my analytical mind. And, and in other situations, for example, how um, our last uh, friend just mentioned, that was the time for me to put away or let go of my analytical mind um, and accept things as they were. So I, I found that distinction very helpful. So thank you. Oh, great. That's what I, um, part of what I'm hoping to impart is that there's, you've shown some wisdom in making the choice of when to use it and when not. In fact, we'll talk a little bit today about um, how it comes into the different factors of the path. So that's great. I'm, I'm glad that came up during the practice. Emily, did you have something? I was just going to say, I, I only got to watch the recording today, so I, I um, haven't really gotten to practice much, but I found it really helpful um, thinking about getting your kind of trying to um, ease up the, the intensity of the discursive, discursive thinking 
um, using some sort of memorization. And actually that, that seems like that's gonna be really helpful. I hadn't, I've never done that before. So I'm looking forward to trying that. Okay, great. Yeah, um, it's one of the things we can do with our thinking mind is give it something skillful to think about. <laughs> yeah. Memorization or sometimes that's the point behind counting breaths and it can also be the point behind noting practice. It's like, let's use that part of the mind. Great. Okay, Alisa. I had a quick thought of that. Oh, and then, um, oh, and Scott, you unmuted first. Okay, Scott and then Alisa. Sorry, thank you. Um, I couldn't help but um, keep thinking about like what the direct experience of inquiry of an analytical, analytical mind like felt like. You know, like I, I have my, I have like, you know, discursive thoughts, they pop up. There's like me, like the brain trying to figure stuff out and like resting in what that feels like as a direct experience, just like I would experience any other sort of sensation was like kind of what was coming up for me. Um, especially since in life right now, I'm like, like using my practice to kind of under to sort of cultivate understanding in sort of an indirect way. And then also simultaneously using like other means of, um, understanding it like in a more direct analytical way yeah. and so to like see what the like really like sort of allow what the feeling of inquiry feels like as a direct experience was kind of an interesting do you have any comments on that at this point or is it still kind of information um, I don't know that I've ever really tried it in that framing before um, it feels confusing actually you know I mean like the, it's, it, it really, like, for me, I keep coming back to this, how do you sit with uncertainty um, aspect of it? Yeah. And I haven't, and I haven't figured that out. And that's, the, and so they're like, what does the not figuring it outness feel like in a way that is um, allowable, you know? Yeah. The one aspect of the analytical mind is that it very, it, it's sort of control oriented and knowledge oriented. I mean, that's the point is it's a, um, a movement toward that and so um, it can be disconcerting in some way to have a very open uh, awareness that goes with that and it can bring feelings that are not very comfortable that's actually some of the, the analytical mind function is to counter some un unpleasant feelings associated with openness or um, open meaning that it, things haven't been tied up neatly in some way um, which is okay, but of course things are never really tied up neatly. So um, it's it's a great inquiry. I'm not at all, yeah, I, I wanna um, encourage it in fact. One way that we can um, maybe draw from somewhat familiar experience is like the approach of a scientist. I know not everyone here is a scientist, although some people are. Um, scientist looks at nature and well, we don't understand nature, you know, in a, in a fully cognitive way. We don't at all. And the scientist approaches with a sense of, okay, I don't get this, but I can maybe get some of it. If I open in the right way and ask the right questions and take data carefully, I might come to some understanding. But it's always in a container of kind of reverence and awe for the large completeness of nature that we can't fully understand with our little brain. Um, so there's maybe some um, connection can be made in that of the stance that we would take. In the same way, our experience, our mind that's unfolding from moment to moment, goodness, we can't understand that with our little tiny brain either, but we can have that same uh, attitude of 
sort of opening to something awesome and see what we find inside. I don't know if that helps, but that was, uh, yeah. Um, Alisa. So um, for me, it was really useful to uh, observe what it, kind of the distinction between discursive thought and um, direct experience while meditating. Um, but one of the things that was interesting to me was connecting that sort of focus on the body sensations while meditating with other, another kind of just sort of knowing in my body that I've experienced in other parts of my life. And so just sort of think, oh, that's what this is that I'm doing when I'm meditating. But the, you know, it just gave me a different feeling of, I mean, I can't really, you know, without going into what that, you know, has some experience in doing certain kinds of artwork, um, where I just sort of, I'm not, my body knows what I'm doing, or my self, whole self knows what I'm doing, I'm not thinking about it anymore. That, yeah. um, and some other things that I've, you know, experienced. So that was really helpful to me to sort of understand a little bit differently what I'm doing when I'm meditating that way. Yeah. People have that experience in sports also, for example, you know, we don't know how to catch a ball while running through the, along the field or something, but the body somehow knows. Um, a very mundane example is that we don't think about driving a car anymore, if, for those of us here who drive. And um, we also don't tune into the body very much either when we're doing that. And you might try it, although be a little careful because when you first tune in with mindfulness to something that you already know how to do, often it becomes harder because we interfere uh, unconsciously. Has anybody ever tripped doing walking meditation? Like, don't you know how to walk? But when we, when we walk back and forth on retreat mindfully, sometimes, um, sometimes we actually get off balance because we're interfering slightly. But this, um, anyway, I, I hear what you're saying on that, Alisa. It's, um, there's memory in the body. And part of um, uh, getting comfortable with letting the analytical mind be only part of our experience is allowing these other ways of knowing to be more trusted, uh, including the body, including intuition, um, other things. So that's great that you've noticed that and connected to think something you already knew. And did anybody do the, um, the conscious inquiry of uh, the optional homework reflection of whether you know, actually know personally in, uh, through direct experience that the earth is round? Yeah, Scott. Yeah, the only one that I can think of is watching a, watching a ship on the horizon. Yeah, that is one of them. Um, uh, if you watch a ship, uh, go out, it will uh, sink below the horizon and you'll see the mast last. That would just wouldn't happen on a flat earth unless it was falling off the edge, of course. But it's, uh, yeah, that's uh, one that can actually be observed. Have you observed that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so there you go. Um, I came up with four direct ones. Risa, did you have another one? Uh, yeah, I, I love the, uh, the, the space, the people in space the first time they saw the gorgeous globe of the earth. And so they had photographs and they showed it to Ah, them. but is that a direct way of knowing? No, not really, but I trust them and believe it. I, I don't know. Right, no. so that's, remember we had the five ways of knowing and the first one was, was trust. Well, um, I put myself in their place. Yeah. 
Yeah, those are compelling. Certainly humans had not seen um, a whole picture of the Earth. Those, those were absolutely stunning when we had those come back from the astronauts. And they didn't have little country markers drawn on them, did they? <laughs> One of the first things. I saw Fred's hand up and also Karen, you're unmuted. Did you wanna? Sorry. No, okay. Fred, did you have your hand up? Yeah. Um thing that I came up with was, was sailing and seeing ships on the horizon like that and seeing the curve at the beach or the ocean. But, yeah. But also, um, I traveled around the world uh, a few years ago where I wound up going to Europe and then to Asia and then across the Pacific back to California. And uh, though that, I thought about that and I wasn't sure if that was really direct experience because, you know, you get in an airplane and you take off and you fly and it's like, you know, do you really, you know what I mean? It wasn't really guaranteed I was flying. Right, but you knew you were always flying but, west. But I came back where I started from, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, that's. I, I would think flying in a plane that starts to open new possibilities. If you know that you're always flying east, if you're certain about that, because you can see the sun, uh, and you do get back to where you started, that that would be one way, presumably, over several days. Um, it is also possible from the airplane to see uh, the curvature of the Earth. Um, if you've ever looked out the window, you can see it uh, at 35,000 feet. You can see it with a 60 degree field of view, which is reasonable from an airplane window. And if you get to 50,000 feet, it's really clear. So some people may have had that experience. Um, also on an airplane, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of flying west, west at sunset. Um, I recently, the last time I flew was in early February, and I flew um, from Boston to San Francisco, uh, and the plane took off at about um, 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon, which is pretty close to sunset at that time of year, and we flew west um, to San Francisco, and the sun, we landed at about 7 p.m. in the dark here, but the sun set out of the five hour, five or five and a half hour flight, the sun was setting for about three and a half hours of it um, because you're flying along with the setting sun. That couldn't happen on a flat earth. So that would be a direct experience also that the earth is, is curved. Um, and then there's also one, it's kind of a silly one, but um, if you watch the sunset from a low place, like say the beach, you, will, you can watch the sunset. If you're quick, you can run up a hill um, and the sun has not yet set. Uh, that is actually possible and that would not be the case on a flat earth. So there are a few ways that are direct and people kind of knew this. Um, but then there's a whole bunch of indirect ways, you know, the picture of the earth. There's, um, we studied things about Pythagoras and the Greeks who made measurements of you know, the height of a uh, shadow at noon here and somewhere far away, and they're different because the sun is impinging at a different angle. Um, time zones are probably, are almost direct. Like we could call somebody right now in Europe and they could put on their webcam and it's dark outside in Europe right now. Um, so we might, if we trust them, and there's still an element of trust, but they're in Europe, so we could see that. So. Yeah, we don't need to go into too much here, but it's an interesting exercise, right? When you start thinking about how do I actually know things? And um, that's a little bit what we focused on last time. Um, 
it's interesting. <laughs> and meditation opens up a whole new universe of knowing things and ways of knowing things. Uh, and it's good to just be flexible and be aware that our mind actually, you know, our, our world and our mind uh, come in lots of different forms and the way that we take things in. It might also be interesting to know that one uh, highly awake, considered highly awake Thai forest master of the 20th century uh, didn't believe that the earth was round when he was told. He'd lived all his life in the forests of Thailand. He'd never done any of those direct evidence things. And somebody came one day and told him, oh, you know, Ajahn, the, the world is, is like a ball. It's round. He thought it was flat and he didn't believe them. He said, oh, that doesn't fit my experience. I'm sorry. And he never believed them, even though he was considered to be pretty fully enlightened. So this kind of rational knowledge uh, isn't actually needed for awakening, just so you know. <laughs> um, anyway, so that's, that was just something to maybe loosen up our thinking a bit. So today's topic is um, the, the path of training that we undergo. And I think this is something that uh, many of us are familiar with um, the idea that there's a path. It's the fourth noble truth. There is a path to get from here to, to awakening. But I want to talk about it today with kind of a lens of what are some of the features of this path if one has an analytical mind, the, you know, one that operates often in that mode. So we'll have kind of a lens on it. Um, so let's see. So the path, um, there are kind of three main areas of cultivation. I think this should be familiar, but we'll go over them also just to um, get grounded. They are, of course, uh, ethical conduct or sila, and then mental development or samadhi, and wisdom or panya. And these are uh, all, of course, interrelated, and sometimes they're interpenetrating. So it's not like we need to classify one particular training as being only part of a certain thing. Uh, they're all connected. Um, and there are a number of classical paths that are offered. So we may have heard of the Eightfold Path, for example. That's the most commonly cited one because it's the one that appears in the Fourth Noble Truth. You know, the path of practice leading to the cessation of suffering is this noble eightfold path, namely wise view, wise intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. I switched, by the way, because the word, uh, I understand that right has um, uh, connotations that are often not, um, uh, don't go over well in, in westernly trained minds and you know, can also have implications that people don't like. But the word um, sama doesn't mean wise. <laughs> it just doesn't mean wise. Um, and so it's, I always have a hard time translating it that way, although I can understand with a little flexibility in the translation that you could call that wise. Um, there are other translations of sama, by the way. The most interesting one is perhaps uh, complete, which it does actually mean. What would it mean to have complete view or complete effort or complete speech? There's a certain fulfillment in that. Um, so I like, I kind of like that translation, although it's not one that we use commonly. And maybe a better one given is appropriate. Um, so the appropriate view for the purpose of awakening, the appropriate intention, because you could have other ones. 
Um, so even there, within that eightfold path training, there are these three divisions. The um, first two, uh, view and intention, are part of wisdom. And then speech, action, and livelihood are part of the sila, ethical conduct part. And then effort, mindfulness, and concentration are part of mental development. So it's divided up into those three trainings. There's also, though, many other uh, versions of the path. Just so that you don't think the Buddha taught the Eightfold Path as this is my path, this is what I teach, everybody starts here and gets there. Uh, there's a long, a much longer training called the, the gradual training that's, I think, cited more often. Well, it's cited more often as a sort of a whole teaching. Uh, the Eightfold Path is more of a singular teaching that fits into other things. And the gradual training is what you would undergo if you show up as a new monk with the Buddha. He says, when I get a new person, I begin them with um, the basic awareness of you know, their activity. So I, I get them to reduce their unwholesome activity. And then there's a whole bunch of other steps like mindfulness and daily activities, uh, uh, moderation of eating, um, moderation of sleeping, all sorts of things that you get to before you even sit down to meditate. And then you do concentration and other development. Um, so the gradual training is another path offered. And then there are even a, a whole bunch of other ones. There's a path that goes through the five faculties and other ones where the Buddha starts a person somewhere and gets them to awakening. There's, there's another one that's the kind of the skillful version of dependent arising. You know, dependent arising being the chain of suffering for, that starts with ignorance and proceeds to uh, aging, illness, and death, to suffering. Um, but there's another version that starts with faith and goes to awakening. And so that could also be taken as a path. So we won't go over all of those. And I'm not just kind of throwing things at you that you ought to know or that you need to know. But I want to loosen up the idea of there being just this eightfold path. There's a lot of different paths. But nonetheless, there are always these three areas of training, um, the ethics, the mental training, and the wisdom. So that's what I want to focus on today. Um, so we might kind of, so let's put on this lens of, you know, what if I start with an analytically oriented mind? I, I feel like that's the way it works for me. What would this look like? Like, how would that fit in? So starting with the ethical steps of the path, which is um, usually where it begins um, in terms of the basicness of the training, the foundational part is the ethics. So we can um, consider that the analytically oriented mind is very good. It's very well attuned to honing in on what works and what doesn't in terms of conduct. You know, what is wholesome? What is unwholesome? Um, you can check in your practice what leads toward suffering, toward dukkha, and what leads away from that. It's um, a nice use of the analytical ability of mind to assess and evaluate how's it going with the, the way I'm acting, the way I'm speaking, even the way I'm thinking. Um, so we can do this in our daily life and in our relational life, um, checking in on those qualities. We can, also, um, we can also use the direct experience that we've been cultivating. So um, how does a certain action that we're doing feel in the body? We can use it as, the, as our analytical tool Oh, I'm going to check. Like I've felt as I've moved towards saying something that's uh, slightly inaccurate, for example, or you know, sort of 
is self a little bit pumps me up um, it's sort of ego related I can feel a little tension coming into the body train myself to feel that that doesn't mean I can always um, uh, be mindful of that and not fall into it but that little tension is what allows the speech to go off track um, and so you can start to tune into that it's actually a very useful tool uh, for helping and supporting your ethical life there can be other feelings like um, I, I described tension. There can also be a feeling of wavering uh, right before we do something that isn't quite right. The body will go uh, a little bit or the mind. Um, and there's, to, to, to use a more technical term, there's a feeling of, of ickiness, <laughs> of like, uh, you know, this is, not, this is not good. And sometimes we do it anyway, right? Or sometimes we're so unmindful because we don't want to feel that feeling of ickiness that we don't notice it, right? So it goes by. Then we might feel it later as, as regret or something else. Um, so this is a, yeah, this is kind of an initial form of wisdom is to be able to use the analytical mind in this way and to use that direct experience that we're starting to cultivate as a support for ethical practice. Um, I don't want to imply that this is like uh, the part of the path that you have to kind of get past, like, okay, well, let's, let's do the ethical part. And once we're done with that, then we can go on to, you know, the, the meditation and the other you know, more important things. Uh, we cultivate ethics all along the path, actually. It is a good place to start because it's uh, available in daily life. You don't really need, oh, you need mindfulness, but you don't need any degree of concentration to start on that. Um, but we're going to keep working on it because uh, this is a cycle, actually. The, the sila samadhi panya, what comes after panya is sila. So it keeps going. And what we'll find is that as we uh, improve our ethical conduct, we'll be able to improve our meditative skills. And then we'll gain some wisdom through insight. And the insight puts us into a different um, view a different understanding that's why view and intention are the wisdom steps of the path so then we have a different view and we have different ideas about what we're doing um, and so then we realize oh, i have to change my behavior to go with that it's a um i see some nods so i think some of you have encountered some of these cycles but you see it i mean this is a deep truth it's of course a truth of the path of people who have chosen to undertake dharma practice but remember that another word for dharma is another translation of dharma is just nature it's just how things work and it happens actually whether or not you're ready for it so for example in our current society we are having a lot of stuff come into consciousness that wasn't there before and um, our view has been shifted quite radically and for some people it was a waking up that they didn't see coming or didn't want coming and there's going to have to be some changes in behavior uh, to go with that, that's the next step. But um, it's hard if you don't have the mental development to really be able to go with that. So we can also be grateful that we're on a path that provides practices and understandings that will support this natural process to go in a way that is actually onward leading, onward leading toward a, a genuine awakening. Um, yeah, so I, I have gotten all the more dedicated to this path um, because I see its value in everything from basic day-to-day -day life and history um, 
to the uh, personal awakening and uh, ability to serve others that um, awakened beings can have. Um, so let me, let me then point also toward um, a sutta that's related to this. I want us to be looking at teachings as we go along. Um, so the Kalama Sutta. Now I know many of you, some of you at least, have heard of this sutta. Um, it's often presented as the sutta that says, you can do what works for you. Um, it's a very um, popular understanding. It, this is not a popular at the level of outside Buddhism. Nobody knows this. But within Buddhism, people think of the Kalama Sutta as the one that says, don't go by the scriptures. Don't go by, in fact, you know, don't go by uh, what people say. Don't go by anything uh, except what you can understand for yourself. So it's a sort of a self-oriented teaching. Um, but I wanted to read what the actual sutta says, which is it says, um, after it says all those ways of knowing, which are very similar to those five ways of knowing that we uh, talked about last time, so I'm not going to go over them. Uh, it says, don't go by these unreliable ways of knowing. So it's pretty much like the sutta we talked about last time. And then it goes on to say this, when you know for yourself, these things are unwholesome, these things are blameworthy, these things are censured by the wise. These things, if accepted and undertaken, lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. And the same, the inverse goes for the wholesome. These things are wholesome, they're blameless, they're praised by the wise. If accepted and undertaken, they do not lead to harm and suffering, or they even lead away from harm and suffering. Then you should live in accordance with them. That's what it says. So, it does essentially say, when you know for yourself, this is what you should do. Um, but notice that it does say in the middle here, censured by the wise and praised by the wise. So there is an outside check. It's not just what you know personally. Why? Because we're not awake. We don't know everything that's correct to do. Um, so there is uh, some outside authority coming in here. Um, there, of course, then there's other suttas that explain how we would know somebody's wise, because that is important to know. Uh, but essentially, this points toward um, an experiential, direct knowledge, understanding of what ethics is. You know, these things, if we do them, lead to harm and suffering. That's what unethical means. And these things, if undertaken, lead away from suffering. Uh, that's that's ethical, and that's what it means. And so it takes a fair amount of discernment and some analysis and some checking. Um, and it also says that um, it, it has a little bit of an experimental flavor to it, which I like. And it doesn't say that you know this ahead of time necessarily. It says you have to accept and undertake them, try them out, and then see. And it might be that some things we try out don't go so well. Uh, we have to be a little, I mean, we shouldn't just blindly try out some huge experiment that might have enormous consequences if we were wrong about it. We can be a little discerning. But I know that I've tried things where I thought, well, maybe if I say to this person in this way, um, they won't get upset about what I say. And I try it and it doesn't go very well. Um, so then I think, okay, that didn't work. 
um, I think that's still within the bounds of this sutta. I'm learning. I'm learning about what is unwholesome, what doesn't work. And then I'm also learning about what's wholesome and what does work. So there's a little bit of a flexible accepting attitude here that we can take for ourselves and are invited, I think, to take for others. If somebody tries something out on you and somebody says something to you that makes you feel irritated or angry, maybe they were just trying it <laughs> to see if it works and they didn't know. So we can have a little compassion. There's a, a seed of compassion within this way of doing ethics. So there's, um, yeah, so this is totally foundational, this idea of, um, of ethics as a um, practice, essentially, as a practice. And we can use our analytical mind quite skillfully to do these tasks of figuring out what's wholesome, what's unwholesome, what works and what doesn't. So then I want to go on to just the beginning of the mental cultivation. I'm going to talk just a little bit about that, and then we'll... Um, pause in the middle of that and do a guided meditation before we finish with the, with the whole threefold training. Um, so the, the reason I want to continue on a little bit is that this same idea of checking what works and what doesn't, using our analytical mind skillfully, works on the cushion too. You know, when you're sitting in meditation, um, you can notice well, let's see, if I sit down and the first thing I do is just try to go right to my breath. Does that work? And some people that works really well. You know, you just sit down and you go right to the object. You don't waste any time. So your, your, your mind and body know that when you're sitting, this is what you do. There are other people that when they sit down, if they don't take five minutes to scan the body and relax, or I know someone who does five minutes of metta, and then they try to go right to the breath, the mind will just scatter or, or resist or fall asleep or something. But if they do these other things first of preparing the body, maybe doing some heart practice, then the mind is like, oh, how nice. Now I'm ready for the breath. Uh, so we can check for ourselves. Is this working? Is my meditation, you know, is it going toward more awareness, more um, tranquility, more heartfulness, whatever, um, you know, wholesome qualities or more, just more awareness, you know, if the mind is caught in hindrances, which does happen sometimes, at least am I able to stay with the hindrances with, with mindfulness? If, and if you do that the whole sit, it was still a successful meditation. So, you know, um, we need to check for ourselves and then things don't stay the same. You know, you can sit down and meditate on the breath quite well for 15 minutes and then the mind gets dull and starts, you know, it, it works too well and the mind gets really calm and starts falling asleep and you realize, oh, I need to um, sit up a little bit straighter or um, maybe uh, pay attention slightly differently to the breath. Instead of just sitting there and feeling the breath come in and out, maybe I need to tune into the joy that's starting to arise because joy is energizing. So that will prevent my mind from sinking after 15 minutes of breath meditation. Um, it's very individual and it's also even something that you can't set it and forget it for you. You know, it's like, oh, I've got my formula, five minutes of this, 10 minutes of this, and then it'll work. Um, so we need to sort of be continually adaptive. But there is a little bit of a role without agitating the mind and overthinking it. Please don't overthink it. 
there is a little bit of a role for a, an evaluation or assessment of how the meditation is going. So we don't need to end our thought. We just need to direct it well and not be so addicted to it. Um, so are there any questions at this point or thoughts about this kind of top level use of the analytical mind to see what's wholesome, unwholesome, what's working, what's not? Okay, good. That's been a fair amount of talking. So I was hoping that we could um, sit a little bit and um, I'll uh, try to offer some guidance around some of this skillful analytical thought. So please find a posture that's upright and also relaxed. If you want to you know, move to some other seat, that's fine, or stand. Um, just making yourself a little bit settled. And if you're comfortable doing so, you can close your eyes. Just tune into how the body feels from the inside. Maybe take a couple of long, slow, deep breaths. And on the exhale, allow the shoulders to drop a bit, and let the body soften. Softening the eyes and the eye sockets from looking at the screen. Maybe softening even inside the skull from if you've done doing listening and paying attention and thinking, you might want to just let that settle out a little bit to a quieter level. Softening the jaw. Maybe letting the shoulders slide down the back, the shoulder blades slide down the back. Down the arms, letting the hands release. down through the chest and the torso area, maybe feeling the rib cage, front and back and sides. Releasing the diaphragm. down into the belly, 
inviting ease through the belly area. Sometimes it helps to imagine a little balloon in the lower belly, letting that expand out and then contract with the breath. And down through the hip joints and the legs, thighs, knees, down through the calves and the ankle joints, and all the way to the feet. Softening. We may notice, for example, the difference between softening and trying to relax. Softening is much more direct, visceral. Mentally, we can invite ease rather than try to relax. Slightly different. So inviting ease through the body. Maybe opening awareness back to whole body sense. As the body is a bit stiller, we may notice more easily the sensations of breathing. Feeling the air coming in, maybe cool and nasal passages, and then moving into the back of the throat, maybe down into the chest or even the belly. The way the clothing shifts against the skin, simple, direct experiences. And then on the out breath, a sense of warmth, a different kind of motion, softening and relaxation in the body. Simple life process. We can see ourselves as just observing something that was happening anyway. And wanting to observe it gently. So it's just proceeding as it would naturally.
we, we can cultivate a sense of ease in the mind as the body naturally breathes. Just being at ease with however the breath feels right now, whether it's short or long, deep or more subtle. even whether it's tense or relaxed. Ease is a little different than relaxation because we can be at ease even with a body that's not relaxed. So cultivating ease. Just gently aiming to stay with the breath. And whenever the mind drifts, just picking up the, the next breath. As you notice any sense, sense of calmness or tranquility in the mind, it's fine to appreciate that and allow it to spread throughout the body. 
Get to know the direct experience of ease, of calm. And from time to time, if it feels helpful, it's possible to scan through the body again, checking if there's any other places that could be invited into ease. Checking if what we've been doing in the mind has generally been keeping it in line with cultivating ease and calm without falling asleep or sinking too much as there's balance. Noticing when it feels like that's enough checking and it's better just to stay tranquil so not agitating the mind with evaluation or assessment, finding the right balance.
So welcome back. I hope that provided some guidance on the skillful use of a little bit of assessment, even in conjunction with what was essentially a tranquility or a shamatha, a calmness meditation. Uh, there is still a role for uh, gently checking uh, the balance of the mind. This is supported in the suttas. We won't go over that today, but there are suttas where the Buddha says, from time to time, you should check this and that as you're uh, helping the mind to get concentrated. So I wanted to uh, just wind up continuing with the description of the threefold training as it, um, the aspects of it relate to having an analytical mind. So we talked about, we're in the mental training section, the shamatha section. Um, Sorry, the samadhi section, sila samadhi panya. So um, we can use the analytical mind to do a little bit of this evaluation. Other skillful uses um, in mental development include learning and studying the texts. We heard someone mention that earlier, is that um, we can learn something about the teachings. That's a very useful use of our intellectual or cognitive abilities. If you think in words, you can consider deeply what the words mean, really sort of try to um, feel into that. If you think in images, um, touch into the images directly, you know, start to use um, the, not just the sort of busy thinking part of the mind, the intellectual part that would read any other kind of book, but start a relationship with the text to read them. And of course, you have to read them through the cognitive mind, it's language but then into the body, into more direct experience, something, uh, some bigger way of knowing. Um, and then as we begin to use this uh, surface level mind, let's say our cognitive intellectual mind well, we will also start to experience the growth of some kinds of Dhamma qualities start to emerge through practice that are related usually to the wisdom function. So qualities like clear comprehension, like uh, careful investigation of experience, Dhammapuchaya, and also wise view and wise intention. So um, that's actually the beginning of the wisdom steps, but the, the mental development steps um, kind of bear fruit in having these mm, wise qualities start to become stronger in the mind, stronger, say, than the tendency towards dispersion and uh, distraction and the other qualities of the discursive mind that we've been working to reduce the intensity of. Um, the investigation that we do in practice, like I just referred to investigation, it's not really a scientific or analytical type of investigation. The Dhamma quality of investigation has a different feel to it. Um, it's a little bit more direct. It's a little bit more about opening and listening and examining in the light of awareness. So, but it's a familiar function of mind for somebody who has a mind that wants to figure things out and look at things and understand how they go together. Those same qualities are present, but it's coming from a place that is more receptive, um, a little bit more grounded in Dharma wisdom. So you'll, it's, it's, you'll see that it's not so logical, but maybe more um, self-organizing and spontaneous. 
we'll see this as we go along. And so then we can start to trust this way of knowing. It's, it has a familiar feel uh, if you have an analytical mind, but um, it seems to come from a slightly different place. So it's um, a different domain. So that will start to emerge through mental development. And then during this time, of course, we also develop concentration, which is a, the big, you know, sort of the main part of the samadhi steps that the Buddha described. Um, and so that can eventually come also as the mind gets stiller and more centered on itself. And then eventually, through cultivating these wise dharma qualities and through the development of some degree of stillness of mind or stability of mind, um, we will start to have insights into how experience works, not by figuring it out, but by experience revealing that to us, just showing us, um, because we're looking in the right way. Um, and these are general qualities of experience. They're not just our own understandings about, say, our own past or how things work for me, but we realize, oh, I'm really seeing some of the laws of nature. I'm seeing how uh, the mind works, and that means nature including the mind. It's not just physical nature. Um, and then this gives us a reliable reference point for what? Acting peacefully and beneficially so the cycle can go on to the sila steps again. I realized that was a pretty whirlwind tour of um, uh, the threefold training in sila samadhi and panya, but it gives some um, understanding that this um, analytical mind can, uh, that's why I called this transformation of the analytical mind. I don't know if it's the best term, because what, we, what comes up is something that's a little different than this part that we've been using before. But it has enough of the similar qualities that I feel like our analytical mind becomes willing to kind of make friends with that. <laughs> and we start to become willing to work a little bit more in that wisdom domain uh, and not exclusively in the domain of rational thought and things that we can control and understand and make sense of. We start to be more of a partnership. At least that's one model of it. Are there questions at this point? Risa. Instead of transformation, I, I, I feel like it's more like a manifestation. It happens without any will of mine involved. And so, and when you say, it, it, I think you said something like it might come from another place, I laugh because it always feels like it comes from another place. I don't feel like I own any of the stuff that shows up that's so helpful. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely not coming from us. But it's on the other hand, it's not separate from us either. So that's a very interesting thing to start to, to trust that. Thank you. Yeah, so I'm, I'm laying this out um, for the purpose of uh, giving a direction, essentially. Because so, the one thing about the analytical mind is it, it wants to know the map. <laughs> but the, uh, the map is not the territory. So um, we'll be spending 
then the other uh, um, remainder of the course uh, looking specifically at practices and qualities that do this um, process of shifting from do the sila samadhi panya and the shift from wanting to mostly be in an analytical mode to opening to this other mode that we're kind of uh, hinting at in this um, so don't get hung up on these path descriptions they're not uh they're not the same as the territory any more than reading about swimming is like getting in the water it's, uh, it's a little different experience right so julie I, as someone who has um, a really strong mind and, and I'm really aware that I like information and that that lets, yeah. it lets my mind relax, it, there's some uh, security in it. So getting this sort of background is interesting, especially because I haven't been working in the Buddhist path um, in recent years. And so I think, I think it's good. I'm a little sleepy. And so um you know i i went more towards sleep in the meditation but i still felt that i i gained some um access and some quietude which was really valuable good i think that my mind feels more um peaceful and willing to not kind of try to run the show so much so that i think it's valuable thanks yeah that's one of the things one of the advantages of a little bit of calm or peace now we can't always have that, so I don't want to set up a situation where we think, oh, it's successful meditation if I got more peaceful and unsuccessful if I didn't. It's all about what, whether you know, but I really like what you said, Julie, that, the, that you notice the connection between feeling a little bit more peaceful from the meditation and being willing to be a little bit more open. Because um, openness really does come from a, a feeling of ease in some sense. And that's true in regular life also. Is there any difference? <laughs> is there any difference? Yeah. It's always regular life. Regular life versus on the cushion. It's hard to know what language to use there. On and off the cushion, people sometimes say, but it is all just life. It's the same mind. I mean, it's not like you have a different mind when you sit down or when you get up. Okay, good. So um, I would like for you guys to have a, a chance at some small group discussion so that you can, uh, first of all, yeah, so you can share your experience and learn, learn a little bit more about each other and from each other. So I thought we would do, let's see, how many people do we have here? Yeah, 16 of you. So I guess we could do groups of four then. Um, that'll work, four groups of four. Um, and I wanted to have a discussion about, so here's the question, um, to share a time when your meditation practice or direct experience in the body, either of those, um, helped you realize that something you were doing was simply not helpful or skillful. So you noticed that something you were doing was producing dukkha. Like I gave that example of when I, sometimes if I, if I, and moving towards something that isn't quite accurate or something, I can feel a tension in my body or at some point in my practice, I notice that. Um, so that's kind of the first thing is to 
describe, and this would have to be brief because you'll only have maybe three minutes each, actually a little bit less than that. We don't have much time, two minutes each, let's say. So just describe it like the, the framework of that. And what I'm really interested in then is how did you, you know, what change did you make when you noticed something in direct experience telling you, mm, this isn't working, this isn't working. What change did you make or didn't you make a change? Did you just override that, which happens also? And how did that feel? Whatever you did, how did that feel? So something about this sense of using the body and the mind together as a um, means of determining what's working and what's not. And you don't have to you know, give your deepest, darkest example. Just pick something that is uh, simple and you're willing to share. Um, and when you get into your groups, just to make it simple, why don't we have the person with the um, shortest hair begin uh, speaking first. And I'll time it so that it's two minutes each and I'll give a little um, uh, written reminder Okay, let me make those. Okay. Okay, so welcome back. And I, um, I'm curious if you have anything to, to share with the larger group. some bit of wisdom that might be useful or some summary of what was, yeah, Julie. I was interested in, in something that came up, which is what we do in the midst of daily life when we recognize that we um, have maybe just fallen down the rabbit hole of thinking a, a little too far. And um, I was interested in that you know, the things that people mentioned that they utilized. I see. So if you feel like you've just gotten caught up in a bunch of thought. Yada, yada, yeah. Yeah, well, as soon as you realize that, of course, you're already not in it anymore, right? So in a sense, the, yeah. it's done. <laughs> but um, did you come, did you, some people mention things in your group? Yes, um, I, I think that for me, I use the breath. And other, uh, someone else in the group mentioned that I also use my heart, say the breath in the heart or the fe feeling actually going to feeling rather than thinking as a way to, to shift. So, yeah, those can both be very skillful. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, there are other strategies, you know, if you didn't want to be thinking so much, you can, uh, consider the disadvantages of, of thinking so much. That's a, another skillful use of thinking mind is just to reflect briefly, hmm, during all that, those three minutes I was just gone, there wasn't much progress on the path toward awakening. <laughs> it didn't slide backwards necessarily, but it was a sideways instead of, so that can work. Or, um, you know, feel the- I ask you, because there's something so judgmental in that, that that wouldn't work for my nature. Well, this is then one of those things where we can evaluate, is this working or not? Because it is, it's also true that analytical types actually like thinking. I mean, that's 
that's why, right? It's so pleasant, it's so fun, it's so fruitful and useful. And there's often not any sense that, um, uh, there's a sense that it's always appropriate. And of course, I think anyone who comes into this class maybe has seen some of the challenges with analytical thought, but uh, it, it can be useful to actually direct the mind to realize, oh, that actually wasn't useful at this moment. Um, but if it's gonna be judgmental, then I think that's very wise of you to say, uh, that wouldn't work in that case because that only adds on another hindrance. It adds on the hindrance of ill will. And I, I think I'm big on not hating the thinking mind. It's important not to do that. Not so, what in the thinking mind? Not hating. Hating. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's important not to bring in that aversion. Um, it's also possible to use an energetic sensation. I think we talked about that last time. So the energy of thinking is quite high often the, it's up in the head also so bringing the attention down more into the belly area or to the feet even lowers the energy and calms the energy level great thanks yeah elisa you've got your hand uh so i think three of us uh talked about experiences that were very emotional and had <clears throat> i you know had situations that involved other people and strong reactions to things involving other people different very different you know kind of emotional things i think and and it seemed my impression was that for three of that mostly it wasn't analytical thinking that was involved in the knowing and figuring out what to do in those situations more, more direct maybe or what or of, yeah of the emotional uh, some kind of emotional um, response. I mean, we all had very different stories and very different kinds of yeah. outcomes, but um, but it wasn't really about analytical thinking in those situations where you don't, that seems to me, at least for me, that's where my analytical mind doesn't work very well. Anyhow. Yes. No, you're onto something because the analytical mind is actually too slow often to kind of figure these things out and the direct experience in the body, or sometimes people would call that emotional if they have a sense of an emotion with it, uh, can be a lot um, faster and more accurate. So I think that's one of the things we learn is that this is one of the areas where we don't necessarily need to want to go into that kind of thought. Although it can be also used, maybe some is useful retrospectively, but, um, as a tool for ethical conduct, direct experience and other ways of knowing are very good. This can start to be our broadening. Thank you for bringing that up because that's a clear, you know, right there when, when I asked for an example, we, what you came up with was right in that realm. Okay, good. Well, um, I wanted to give some suggestions for things to look at this week. Um, if it's of interest, of course, and if you have space in your life. So we could in daily life, for example, notice how the actions and speech feel in the body. And this is just what was being pointed to. Is there some in the moment guidance about what is skillful or unskillful based on how our actions and speech are feeling in the body. This may be a new experience for some of you if you haven't practiced mindfulness of speech while speaking. 
Um, I know people who have wanted to practice mindfulness of speech and discovered that it took a while before they could be mindful and speak at the same time. Uh, so that's, that's to be expected uh, if we haven't been practicing that. But I recommend as a way to connect with being mindful of speech in the moment is to use the body. Uh, so that can be helpful. And then to, um, in meditation practice, is if it's of interest, to focus on the ease and the, and the calm. Um, so shamatha-type meditation to um, really help start to develop that sense of um, direct experience of ease and calm, as I pointed to in the guided meditation. And there will be a link sent if you want to use that or you don't have to. prefer not to do guidance. Yeah, Julie, I see your hand up there. Are you speaking of the one that you sent or one you're going to send? I'll send a new one. I'll send a new one. I'll okay. send the one that we did today because I recorded that separately. It had a lot of crows in the background, didn't it? I don't know if anybody noticed that. I wasn't sure what was coming through the computer, but I figured it all, it all contributed. Anything else? Um, questions or comments or? Okay, good. So I feel like we've got some foundational, um, some foundational sense of what is the analytical mind and what is this direct experience? That was kind of the first distinction to make. And now a sense of kind of the overall map. You don't have to worry about the details, but we're developing sila, samadhi, and panya. That's always what one has to do to unfold and, and help awaken the, the heart. And um, with that, and the analytical mind is not um, an intrinsic problem that you have to get rid of in order to do all of that. It's, uh, it can be used along the way and it will eventually, we're gonna broaden out, kind of broaden out beyond it and allow these other more dharmic qualities to emerge um, as we've uh, kind of pointed to. And so as we go along, we'll be exploring that process um, a little bit more directly. So we'll look at some of the supports. You can't use only your analytical mind. So we'll talk about heart qualities, the cultivation of metta and um, other such uh, sort of warmer, softer qualities that are a great nourishment for the path. We'll talk about investigation. What does it mean to really look at experience in a dharmic way? not sort of thinking about it, but directly experiencing anicca, dukkha, anatta, these important qualities. And we'll look at wisdom as a, um, a kind of a fusion, a unification of the heart and the mind with these more intuitive qualities coming forth. And we'll point uh, in the end toward what lies really outside of, uh, of what the cognitive mind can know. So, I wish you all well and um, have a wonderful week. May it be filled with as much ease and health as is possible in our times. And I'm just delighted that we all have this practice to share, which adds so much to the world. So, thank you, Kim. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, feel thank free to. Um, thank, you, yeah. thank you, Kim. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Kim. Good night. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.org slash donate.